Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald. My colleague, Louis Friedberg, is off relaxing on the East Coast. Meanwhile, I'm here with three of my colleagues at EdSource, and we've been working hard this week to prepare for the return of a legislature on Monday. So we're going to talk about some of the key bills that are very much alive and in some cases still under negotiation. With me in the studio is Teresa Harrington, who covers primarily Oakland Unified and West Contra Costa Unified districts. To bring you up to speed in case you missed any of the stories we've been doing, Teresa wrote this week about what happens when a donor steps forward to fund all of your project requests on Donors Choose, as happened to 94 Oakland teachers this year. Welcome, Teresa. Thanks, John. Also here in the studio is Zadie Stavely, our early education reporter, who wrote a great overview this week about how California is putting early education on the national agenda and elevating it for the presidential election. Welcome, Zadie. Hi, John. And in Sacramento... Our reporter on the teacher beat is Diane Lambert. This week, she updated us with the latest rates of childhood vaccinations, which is a good topic with the start of school. EdSource has an easy-to-use database with the latest information on vaccination rates in every school in the state that has reported their rates. Welcome, Diana. Hi, John. So let's talk today about some of the bills we've been watching. We have two cheat sheets on all of the key bills that we're following at EdSource. We call them trackers, and one is for early education, the other is for K-12, and we'll be adding a third on higher education early next week. So all the bills have passed one branch of the legislature, and now is when the going gets tough, when issues get pushed to the next house. Zadie, do you know what the time frame is for passing the bills? So they start the session August 12th, and they have until August 30th to pass appropriations or not. And then the legislature has until September 13th to pass bills. And then the governor has until October 13th to either sign or veto those last bills that were passed. So, Zadie, why don't you start us off with early education? It's been a monumental year under Governor Newsom with nearly $2 billion in investment for young kids in the state. There's more access to child care and preschool, trauma screenings. Tell us what bills you're watching and how they would continue that momentum. The two bills that I'm watching really closely, John, are SB 174 and AB 125. These two bills would change the way that the state pays child care centers and family child care homes that serve low-income children. It's very complicated right now, but basically these bills would do two things. They would tie all the rates to the regional cost of care. Right now, only some centers get a regional cost rate. And the other thing that they would do would be to tie higher rates to programs with higher quality standards. So fewer children in the classroom, more teachers, teachers with higher preparation, more college degrees. And so this is important because the child care workforce is really poorly paid and it has really high turnover. Child care providers struggle to find new teachers and they struggle to keep teachers on. I talked with Liberty Cajayon, who is a teacher at Peninsula Family Service in San Mateo. She teaches in the infant toddler room and she had this to say. When I first started working here, I was in preschool and then they moved me over to the infant room. I get paid 18 an hour. For 18 an hour, I know that I'm getting paid more than a lot of teachers are. And for me, I mean, it's not even enough to live on my own. I just turned 27 and um, like I still live with my parents. I would love to be independent. It just seems so unattainable. Like I feel like I'd have to break my back working two jobs, which I know some people do, just so they can 
pay rent and that's it no traveling no none of that like basic necessities i feel like you shouldn't have to work two jobs so zadie if the money goes directly to the centers how will this increase her pay well, all of the child care providers that I talked to who have subsidized centers who serve low-income children said that the biggest expense that they have is paying teachers and that they really need to pay teachers more. And then if they have higher reimbursement rates, that they will use that money to pay teachers. I talked with the executive director of the center where Liberty Cajayona works. She told me that she ends up leaving classrooms empty and not enrolling new children because she can't find teachers. So Liberty said that she makes $18 an hour, but the median wage for childcare providers is actually $13 an hour. And a recent study from UC Berkeley and the Economic Policy Institute said that childcare workers and early education teachers are six times more likely to be living in poverty than K-12 teachers. So is there any word from the Newsom administration as to whether or not they support any of these bills or all of them? I don't have official response from the Newsom administration. What I've heard from them is that they absolutely support more pay for child care providers, but there wasn't any funding in the 2019-20 budget for increasing reimbursement rates for the child care centers. And right now, what the advocates are trying to do is to get those bills passed to change the policies and then increase the pay at a later date. Uh, a little pressure maybe on next year's budget. Well, thanks, Zadie. Let's turn to vaccinations. There's a bill that would strengthen the state's vaccination law. Diana, I thought we took care of this issue back in 2015. Mm -hmm. What's the bill and why do we need it? Well, Senator Richard Pan authored Senate Bill 276 in an effort to plug holes in the current state vaccination law that requires students to be immunized in order to attend school. In 2016, he passed a vaccination law that prohibited personal belief exemptions. So the number of vaccinated students has increased almost every year since the law passed, but so have the number of students with medical exemptions signed by a doctor. 95% of children at a school must be immunized, according to the California Department of Public Health. So medical exemptions, which have gone up fivefold since 2011, have poked holes in the state's vaccination law, which otherwise is one of the strongest in the country. Diana, would this bill prohibit medical exemptions? No, it would just crack down on doctors who issue medical exemptions that are not justified. It calls for the California Department of Public Health to review a medical exemption if a child attended a school with an immunization rate of less than 95%, if the doctor who signed the exemption had written five or more during the year, or if a school did not provide the department with its vaccination rates. So, Diana, there's been a lot of opposition and you know misinformation about the bill and its importance so what's the main argument of the anti-vax groups, and do you have a sense of how strong they are? Yes, they're, they're pretty strong. The argument basically is that this bill gets in the way of patient-doctor rights, and they don't think that should happen, and they think it also gets in the way of parental rights, and they have been at the Capitol in large numbers protesting. But it, it does appear as if this bill will be approved by Governor Gavin Newsom, if it is passed. Let's move on to Teresa. Give Senator Anthony Portentino credit for his dogged determination. Last year, Governor Brown vetoed his bill that would mandate a later start for middle and high schools, and now he's back again. 
with his bill, hoping Governor Newsom will sign it if it gets to his desk. Right. So it's been amended slightly so that now it would mandate that middle schools could not begin the school day before 8 a.m. And high schools, including charter high schools, could not begin earlier than 8.30 a.m. starting July 1st, 2022. It's important because a lot of people on the pro side, which includes the California State PTA, are citing the research and the American Academy of Pediatrics saying that sleep deprivation is a real issue for kids this age and their biological clocks start changing at that point and they need more sleep and they stay up later. So they need to sleep a little bit later. And in places where this has been implemented, they have shown studies that it improves students' grades, test scores, and even their mental health. But then a lot of school districts have come out against it saying that this will impact working families and it'll impact bus schedules and it will cost more money. And so there's a big debate going on right now. It's already passed the Senate and it's in the Appropriations Committee and it's heating up for quite a battle, I think, in the Assembly. So what was the governor's reason last year, Governor Brown, for vetoing it? Well, he's very big on local control, and that was his issue. And he said, you know, school districts already, if they want to implement this, they can. No one's preventing it. And that really this is an issue that is best left up to local school districts. And school districts such as Oakland Unified have come out with that same argument in opposition. What What's the problem with local control? Like, if there was, if there are two districts right next to each other, is that a problem when one has, you know, 8 a.m.? and one has, you know, nine. Right. And so one of the issues, too, is after-school sports. And so if you have several different schools and districts that are participating in the same sports league, that can mess up those schedules. But there have been places where all the districts have changed or all the schools have changed and they're able to accommodate that. And West Contra Costa School District just discussed this last night, actually, and two of the school board members were really in favor of it. One of them was a teacher and she said, yeah, the first hour of class, I've seen my kids and they're very sleepy. And another one said, you know, the science is definitely proving that this is correct. And they've got a lot of low income kids there who already are struggling. And he said, our kids really need a leg up. And this is one thing that we can do to help them. And then another school board member said she actually went with students up to Sacramento to advocate for this with the legislature. But she personally hasn't made a decision yet, but she felt like the students were very good advocates and made very good arguments. All right. Well, let's get personal. Have you make the call. You've you've raised several teenagers. (laughs) What do you think? Uh, I agree that this is an issue for teenagers as a parent, that they do stay up late. And in the morning, I saw my own teenagers struggling to get to school on time. Interesting subject. We haven't talked about charter schools yet, and we know that that's been a big issue. Several bills are coming back. In fact, one is AB 1505, Patrick O'Donnell from Long Beach. He's authored, and it's so big that I think we'll take this in two segments. Diana, you'll take the part dealing with staffing, and I'll deal with the restrictions on charter schools. It would do a lot, and the bill that the governor and his aides sort of got involved right before recess and made some significant changes to it, and as it is now, the bill would restrict the ability of the State Board of Education to hear appeals and leave the appeals alone at the county level. And it would also introduce for the first time, this is a big compromise, the ability of school boards to consider impacts other than those in the law now, such as whether or not the charter schools would at this point saturate the district and also whether it would duplicate what's already offered by the charter schools 
or district schools. So, Teresa, you've been following this too. What's a sense from the districts that you've been covering? Well, actually, both in uh, Oakland and West Contra Costa, there's support for this bill by the school boards and the school administrators because both of those districts have a lot of charter schools. Oakland especially is considered to be saturated by a lot of people. And at the early hearings, the Oakland school board president testified in favor of the bill early on. And there was also people from the charter schools in Oakland that were testifying against it. And so in Oakland, this is kind of a real ground zero kind of a situation where charter school operators are actually banding together and they just formed a new group called Families in Action to try to advocate on behalf of charter schools and they're actually going to the school board meetings to say look we're part of this community too and we deserve to be here just as much as the traditional district schools. So Patrick O'Donnell said he hasn't given up on making the bill stronger back to what it was originally which would have enabled districts to consider financial impact openly as a factor. And he'd also really restrict the right of appeal. And so he's saying, you know, it's not over yet. What's the sense from the districts that you cover? They want a stronger bill, the original version? Well, there's actually a very strong advocacy group in Oakland, which is parents and teachers. The teachers union is very much in favor of this, that does want it to go back to the original bill. And they're advocating very strongly in favor of that. They actually think there should be no appeals at all, because in Oakland, the Alameda County Board of Education has overturned their denials and approved charters. And they feel like, well, you know, no matter what we say, it might get overturned anyway. And they feel like that's really not fair. So it'll be really interesting to see this latest version. So, Diana, there's another part of the bill dealing with staffing. Tell us what that's about. Well, the bill would also clarify vague language in charter school law that allows some teachers in classrooms without the proper credentials and background checks. So uh, charter school law currently only requires teachers to have credentials if they're teaching specific classes that are called core classes, but it doesn't spell out what core classes are. So this new law spells it out. Core classes are English, math, science, and social science. These are the only teachers in charter schools that are required to have a credential. So because the other teachers aren't required to have a credential, they never filed any paperwork with the state that kicks off the need for a background check that lets the state know this teacher should have a background check. Diana, does that mean that teachers who are elementary school teachers who teach all subjects would would be exempt? With the new law, they also have to have a multi-subject permit if they're an elementary school teacher. So Patrick O'Donnell, he really wants all teachers, right, to have a credential? He would like all teachers. That was the original bill? To be honest, I'm not sure what the original bill says, but I know that he has said and told me that he would like to have all teachers credentialed. So I spoke to Charter School Association Executive Director Myrna Castrojon, and she said that she's concerned that the bill could actually be changed over the next two months to become more restrictive. And she thinks that charter schools should have the flexibility to hire people like musicians, uh, artists, etc., who have great life experience but don't necessarily have a teaching credential. Thanks, Diana. We'll be watching that bill closely over the next month. Thanks, John. So before we go, I'd like to uh, talk about a couple bills myself. And one is uh, Assembly Bill 39. That's been around for a year. That's uh, Assemblyman Al Maratsuchi from Torrance. That would set a goal of funding in the state. It's an aspirational target that would bring California to roughly at least the state average among the states. And 
depending what formula you use, whether or not you consider regional costs. We're close to it now, but if you consider regional costs, we're well behind. And so the estimated cost of doing this using the local control funding formula as a way to measure would be about $33 billion, and we wouldn't get there anytime soon. So I think the point would be, hey, we need some more sources of revenue to do that. And the second one is Assembly Bill 48. That would establish a facilities bond in 2020, probably March, and a second one in 2022. That's also by Patrick O'Donnell. And we don't know the details. That's being negotiated right now, but we haven't had a school bond since 2016. There is no money right now from the state to help local school districts when they pass their bonds. So it's also important, something that we've been covering, is that the bill might allow for reconsideration of how the money's distributed. Right now, primarily uh, suburban districts and wealthier districts, property wealthier districts, are the beneficiaries. This would perhaps reconsider that distribution to allow or make accommodations for low wealth districts, and that's important. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of districts will be watching that closely, especially Oakland Unified, which is talking about putting a new bond measure on the ballot in 2020. Now that about wraps it up for this week. I want to thank Teresa, Zadie, and Diana for participating and sharing your knowledge. Thank you, John. Thanks, Thanks, John. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.